Okay, we're now live on Facebook and recording. Excellent. I think we're about ready to go, Chad. Um, welcome, everyone. Uh, now we're going to press broadcast. There we go. Let everyone in. Excellent. Well, welcome, everyone. Uh, thank you for joining the No Fake News podcast this week. Uh, we're actually uh, doing something a little bit different this week. We decided to take a step back at where we've been over the past seven episodes or six episodes. This is our seventh episode. So we've been doing it a couple of months now. We've had some amazing uh, responses from people out there. Uh, we've had questions coming from all over the world about um, some of the things that we've been discussing. Some of those questions have come through on the actual podcast, and I really want you guys to jump on. Uh, I start asking more questions today. It's only Chad and myself. Uh, we're here to talk about and sort of recap on some of those uh, questions, issues, challenges, opportunities that have uh, been discussed over that time. Um, and we've been able to have some really good discussions on the phone with different people at different times that, to be honest with you, I, I didn't think the industry actually was thinking about, and I'm glad that they are. Um, over the next couple of weeks, we're looking at having uh, new uh, participants, panelists, uh, the likes of, for example, we're looking at having auction houses on. We're looking at having some people out of the US um, that do a lot of work with uh, cross-stock organizations there, uh, packaging. Uh, we did some, some, some things with the core people, but we'll look at having Becky from uh, UCC, the Catalytic Converters. Capricorn here in Australia, if we can get them get them on, would be great. So looking forward to all those. But we thought it really important we take a bit of a step back for a second, try and recap where we've been, you know, look at taking the next step with some of those questions that have been asked uh, and actually expanding on those. And we've got some really good questions that have come through prior to this session um, and we've posted those. We'll have them up on a, on a, a screen share in a minute. But as I said, if you've got questions, we'll be checking the Zoom screen from time to time so that we can see where, where you're at with those as well. So without further ado, Chad, good morning. How are you going? Good morning. Doing well. Doing, doing well. Excellent. Excellent. I can see the background. It's a bit cloudy in Melbourne. Yep. <laughs> a bit cloudy. <laughs> Winter is coming. Um, so how about, Chad, we jump straight into, we've got a few people on already. So how about we jump straight into and uh, share our screen, uh, our slideshow, uh, and we can start talking a little bit about some of the key areas that we want to discuss today. Some of the big topics, if you like, that we've um, come across and spoken to different people on. Um, we thought we'd make this a little bit fun. Um, Chad came up with this no fake news. Uh, um, you came up with this idea. <laughs> uh, we do have a bit of a chuckle in the office. I have to say, uh, Chad and I, I'm, I'm the good old CNN and the Fox News stuff. Um, but uh, look, it's all lighthearted. Unfortunately, we're, we're in a situation at the minute where we need to need to be as lighthearted as possible. So uh, no fake news, no holds barred here. We want to really get out uh, as much information as possible. And if there's some tough questions that we need to talk to and answer, let's do that. So let's jump straight into it, Chad. Um, why are recyclers and insurers and eBay in the UK embracing certification? I think here, guys, what we want to talk about isn't an Australian thing or a New Zealand thing. In fact, a couple of the questions that have come through 
uh, for us to discuss uh, on this show are actually questions that have come out of the UK. Uh, this show at eight o'clock in the morning here is actually quite late in the UK. I think it's about 11 o'clock at night. And although we have uh, some of our UK friends on the show, it, it often is a little bit difficult for them to attend um, all of them. So, um, so uh, Chad, talk to us a little bit about this. Uh, you, when you had your operation in, in Alabama, um, I know that you sort of held off the certification yeah. for some time, but then you, you looked at doing it. Tell us yeah, I, I did not. Uh, I did not pursue certification with my operation because I couldn't see a monetary benefit for it. I was looking at, you know, if I spend ten thousand, twenty thousand, thirty thousand dollars improving my operation so I could become compliant with some of the guidelines set forth in the certification, would I see a return on that investment, or would it just be money just thrown out just to improve appearances and 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 functionality and a few other things, but not really, really make me any money would that money be better spent to put in more cars and dismantle more cars that are turning profit i can measure that return on investment and and i held off for a long time and then uh nsf stepped into the certification arena and <clears throat> that was a name that was recognized by uh the body shops for sure because they already certified the body shops uh it was a, a large name that was globally recognized and I realized then that, that that title of NSF certification would have benefit. So we pursued certification. I actually had to hire a full-time employee to actually handle uh, getting our operation fully up to speed and compliant with the certification that was set forth by ARA at the time. Um, but what I realized is that actually spending the money, it wasn't terribly much, it was $10,000 probably we spent, uh, but my business became more profitable. You know, we, we implemented policies and, and procedures that, that reduced re returns, you know, that, that uh, reduced the likelihood of injury, that uh, slip and fall stuff was reduced, uh, that the liability associated with a electrical shock from a dismantling a hybrid vehicle d diminished because of some of the certification stuff we put in place. And so I really say that, that the certification more than paid for itself because I, I ended up uh, changing my operation completely. So. Okay, so it, it, it's a difficult one, right? I, my view, and, and I think everyone knows that I'm an advocate for certification. I think that's where it will end up, and that's where we need to go. And we'll address a question here from Greg um, in a second. But Greg, it'd be also good to know. I'm, I'm not sure where you're from, so Greg, uh, if you can just uh, let us know where you're from as well, so we've got some context there about uh, Australia, New Zealand, UK, the US, or wherever else. So that'll be great. Um, but as, as most will know, uh, certainly an advocate um, for certification and there are reasons for that, right? And the, the reasons for that are exactly some of those key things there, Chad, around improving quality, improving operational you know, uh, capabilities within the business. I suppose it's one of those things that you don't necessarily see an immediate return on. You know, when I was helping NSF out here in Australia and in the UK, I used to get a number of calls from recyclers basically asking, am I going to make more sales because of certification? I mean, to be totally honest with you, my response to them was pretty clear. And that is, if that's why you're doing it, your primary reason for doing it, then I don't think you, it's right for you at this point in time. Uh, you need to be doing certification for the right reasons, such as, um, I want to improve my, uh, my operation. I want to make sure that I meet the required minimum standards 
uh, of trading. You know, I want to make sure that I do the right things and keep my people safe. I want to make sure that we do all the right environmental things. And ultimately, you will sell more parts. That, that's my view is critically, you will sell more parts. So just on that note, let me go to, to Greg's question. And thank you, Greg. Greg's from Condon's Auto Parts in Maryland in the US. Um, are there any organizations requesting certification to approve parts purchasing from those recyclers? I agree with Chad. I don't see anyone asking for it. So with Chad's point, is a certification what we need or a training and educational program? Um, okay, great question, super question. Um, Greg, one of the, we're gonna be talking a little bit here around you know, different organizations. Um, as we've got on the screen at the minute, certainly doing a fair bit of work and have been over the past 15, 16 months with eBay in the UK and also with a number of insurers, including Aviva Insurance in the UK, who are looking to actually pilot a program as we speak. And the view is that as an insurer in this case, Aviva's view of the world is that we uh, would like to use more recycled parts. One of the challenges we have as a large corporate publicly listed organization is that we don't necessarily know who the good guys from the bad guys are. Um, and I say that in a nice way, but we don't know who the good yards versus the bad yards are. We don't know the ones that do the environmentally sound thing. We don't know the ones that are licensed necessarily. We don't know that. And it's probably not our core business to know that. We're, we're in the business of knowing insurance in this context. From an eBay perspective, we don't know the good guys from the bad guys either. We don't know which ones are purchasing vehicles correctly, which ones are legitimately selling those parts, which ones check for, you know, for example, recall components on the vehicles and so on and so on. As a result, we've got large corporate organizations facilitating the supply of um, parts from anyone um, or using those parts from anyone and there's no real uh, controls in place. In that context, Greg, uh, certainly the UK market has taken a lead in that area. There's no doubt about it. And we've got uh, a number of insurers now that are showing significant interest in certi certified recyclers. Um, the Vehicle Recycling Association over there under the, um, the leadership of Chaz Ambrose has embraced a certification program. Um, they've just finalized the certification protocol. They are launching it as we speak and have appointed two independent certification, uh, sorry, auditing bodies to audit the uh, protocol uh, on an annual basis uh, at every one of the automotive recyclers that will be part of that certification program. And eBay, for that matter, has, has uh, developed a, a new category. I, can, I think they're called categories, but certainly they'll be labeling the certified recyclers on the eBay platform as eBay certified. Um, and really promoting those yards and only letting those yards participate in the B2B platform that they're building for the collision repair industry. So there's a whole heap of things there that I've just mentioned that I think are, are groundbreaking, really. Um, that that is a monetary benefit right there, Chris. You just, what you just talked about with eBay and the insurers, that's a monetary benefit to the recycler. That is what it's going to take to truly drive the recyclers to embrace the certification on a global scale. And this is happening in the UK. We can see the recyclers that are embracing that certification moving forward with it and wanting it to happen. <clears throat> in the US, we don't, we don't see that in the US. I don't think we have it here in, in Australia yet either. 
but that's exactly what it's going to take to, to drive the certification process on a global scale. I think so. Uh, look, to be honest with you, when eBay contacted me some, you know, February, February 2019 and said, look, we, we want to do something here. Can you help us um, do something over here? And, and I touched base with a number of the recyclers. There is no doubt having someone like eBay put their hand up and say, we will, uh, for want of a better term, sponsor a program. We will support a program of certification. Um, it really gets the attention of, of our industry. And if you look at the UK environment, eBay is such a big part of those automated recycling businesses. You know, there's some automated recyclers in the, in, in the UK that are doing £100,000 on eBay a, a week. I was going to say a month. It's a week. So they're doing a lot of money on eBay, right? You, you look at their eBay dispatch areas and they're full of small, you know, boxes the size of a shoebox or something that fits a headlighting and so on. Um, really, I'm talking from top to top to bottom, uh, full of full of those boxes after a weekend of trading on, on eBay, really. So big part of their business, great opportunity. I think we've got a lot to learn from that in other jurisdictions outside of the UK. About to go live, as I said, um, in, that, um, in that region. I don't know. I think, you know, if there's any, any sort of compelling argument to, to embrace something like certification, and, and I know we're going to talk about it a little bit later on in, in, this, in this session because there are other things that are popping up that keep on pointing towards it, but I think it's, it's going to be a critical component of the industry moving forward. Um, just checking, got another couple of questions coming in here. Uh, we've got Peter from New Zealand. I'm assuming Peter Butler uh, sending anonymously. Laugh out loud. Very good, Peter. Now that NSF have gone from our industry, do you have any other companies lining up to certify used and aftermarket products in the New Zealand for New Zealand and Australia? Um, so, Peter. Do we have them lining up? No, we don't have them lining up. But certainly, I think there's a role um, for our associations to play here. Um, when NSF disappeared, decided to pull out of the automotive part of the industry, we really uh, focused very quickly. In fact, I remember, Chad, that morning that that announcement came out, you were at uh, you were somewhere travelling with Jonathan Morrow at the time, and we were at a phone rang about 15... 15 minutes after the announcement came out and the question was, Chris, what are we going to do? We need certification for the industry. And, and you know, what, what are we going to do here? And we spent some time on the phone there. And I, I said very quickly, look, I don't know. This is very sort of new to me as well. It was 15 minutes old from my perspective. So it was a bit of a shock for me, but I certainly think one of the first things I said was, this is an opportunity for the ARA in the context of the U S the VRA in the context of the UK, and I applaud Chaz for embracing it and, and doing the hard work to make it happen there, um, to step up, for APRA to step up here in, in, in Australia and really take the reins and drive the agenda with regard to certification. It, who should own certification? The association should own certification. They should have it independently um, managed, if you like. The audits should be independently managed uh, by external auditing organisations. They should be done annually. Uh, they should not be self-regulated or self-managed uh, uh, deals. Um, because if we're going to be serious about it, if we're going to be taken seriously, we need to go independent. That's, that's the only way certification will work 
and that the only way we're going to get value out of it. And I think the English have really seen that uh, uh, crystal clear. So, Peter, to, to answer your question, no, there's not, not many people jumping up and down at this stage. Um, I certainly have had a, an opportunity uh, to discuss this with Chaz Ambrose of the Vehicle Recycling Association in the UK uh, just in the last couple of weeks. Um, their protocol, their document is second to none. What they've developed there and they've spent money on that and eBay supported that and I applaud eBay for supporting our industry and actually putting their hand in their pockets to both support the certification program, support the building of a strategy around how they can help more recycled parts be um, reinvested in, in, the, in the repair chain. There's a whole heap of answers, a whole heap of things there that, that uh, they're doing there. We are in a position potentially that we can piggyback off the back of what they've done over there and, um, and bring something to the Australian, US, New Zealand, whichever market it is. Uh, but if I'm going to sort of finish up on this, recycler associations, you know, groups, panel, you know, the parts world, parts plus, lobby your associations, take a lead and make something happen. It's not going to happen by itself. Someone needs to lead. So that, that's my take on that, Peter. I hope it helps that answer. Um, Don Porter, certification itself will not necessarily lead to additional sales, but make a return on investment, as Chaz indicated. Certification can lead to a change in business process and philosophy, a decrease of administrative costs, greater efficiencies, which will all lead to an increase in the recyclers margin. So that's from Don Porter. Don Porter is the um, uh, CEO of the United, Re uh, United Recyclers Group in the US. So Don, thanks for firstly being on and we're planning on getting Don on as a, as a guest over the next few weeks as well. So Don, uh, get ready for a, a, an invite, mate. We'll, we'll be on the phone to you uh, in the next week or so to, to discuss a date. But Chad, do you want to sort of uh, touch on that one as well? I agree completely. He's just reiterating what I said earlier. The, my business process has improved whenever I went through the certification process, which resulted in higher profits. Uh, it resulted in happier customers because uh, we had quality control we put in place. You know, the, the whole idea of now, you know, we were, we were photographing every single part as it was leaving our facility before we wrapped it and after we wrapped it. That meant that we were looking at it closely and being sure that it has superb quality. Uh, which was resulted in fewer returns. And so, I mean, it did in, increase our, our profits because we didn't have to waste time going and getting parts back that we had delivered and had to go back and pick back up. And so the, the business processes did dramatically improve through the certification process. I agree with Don Porter correctly. You know, I think one of the really important things there, uh, Chad and Don, is actually the fact that often as an industry, we've, we've not really invested, and, and Rob, I'm gonna to get to your question or your comment in a second, but we haven't really invested in training our people, in developing these processes, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We've, to a degree, we look at investment as, I buy a salvage vehicle, I pay two, I get five back for it, for example, and I wanna have a cost of goods of around 40%, you know, to use a, an average number. Um, Certainly, there are investments that we need. You, know, you need to invest in inventory. Investing in our people, investing in our processes, investing in business development has been somewhat lacking. Um, even, at, even in the good operations, yeah, even in the really big operations, we don't put that much time and effort into that. 
um, which is more outwardly looking. The other thing I don't think we put a lot of time and effort, or we do very well, and please, this is not a, a reflection on anyone individually, but more so an industry thing that I think we can get better at. And this is one of the important things about these types of shows is that we can discuss these things, right? Um, and that is marketing. And I know a lot of people over the years have said, what, including me, by the way, don't go marketing too much because you don't do what you do today very well in taking those calls and converting them into sales. Don't disagree with that. Uh, but if you do become certified, how, what are you doing to tell people about that? Right? What are you doing to tell your customer that you are certified? And why is that important? What does it mean? What does it mean to them? Does it mean they're getting a better product? Does it mean they're paying more for their product? Does it mean that their product is safer? Do they have safety, safety sort of uh, precautions in place with regard to, again, um, you know, obviously I'm involved in the recall stuff, but do they know that the product that they're getting has been checked for recalls and that if there is a recall on it in the future, that as a certified or as a, someone that has a recall process, that they're actually managing the recalls properly. So they're the types of things that I think we need to be out there telling people more about. So uh, Rob, Rob's is more a comment than anything. The unfortunate gap, Rob Mildenhall, sorry, from Capricorn Society, the unfortunate gap is the lack of the associational support for establishing the criteria and having the willingness to act on standards that are not upheld. Rob's background is uh, is one of certification. Rob, if I'm you know not necessarily directly in certification, but having been involved, I think in some rather sophisticated industries such as aviation, for example, um, Rob has a lot of knowledge around certification and. A certification program is only as good as, one, the standards, two, the policing, if not, you know, upholding those standards and, and being able to, to be in a position to actually show that that organisation does it the right way and says what they write and write what they say, I suppose, in, in the documents. Um, you know, to a degree, Rob, yeah, I think you're right. Um, the association i know the mtas slash vacc are doing a lot at the minute with regard to COVID. been doing a lot in the background with regard to elbs um i'm not having a shot at the guys uh, i'm just making a comment here that yeah there's there's opportunity there to improve from an association perspective my view is if i'm going to be really open and transparent on it is that we uh, as an industry and chad knows about this he's he was the president of ara in the us for some time but the amount of time that Chad and, you know, Jonathan Morrow and David Gold and the Herb Liebermans over the years and the likes of Mike Swift and the likes of, you know, now we've got Scott Robertson Jr. That's, that's there as the president took over from Chad. These guys put hundreds of hours a year into this. You know, Chad, tell us a little bit about what percentage of your work week was put into the ARA as the president of ARA? Leading up to it, uh, when we went through a transition with the executive directors, I was putting 40 hours a week in. I was not even president at that time, but I was putting 40 hours a week into ARA-type uh, business. Uh, <laughs> it, it took up a vast majority of my time. It really did. And, and you say, well, how in the world could it take up that much time? But that means you start talking, you have a thousand or 1200 members asking questions and emails coming through and concerns. And we need to investigate particular regulations and laws and, 
and what can we do to, to uh, interact with that. And then the executive committee discusses what uh, the association needs to do. And so you start talking, you have 20, 30, 40 emails a day just amongst the executive committee to talk about you know, two or three or four topics that would pop up. And so there was a lot of time, energy put into it. And it was, it was a full-time job and it was you know, zero compensation. And I could have been reimbursed for travel, but I mean, I never even requested reimbursement for travel. I just felt that I was compelled to help the association, help the industry, you know, that was my job and uh, enjoyed every minute of it. And, and really it, it, it upset me to, to have to resign that position when I moved here to Australia because uh, I just enjoyed it so much, but uh, there's a lot of time and energy put into it. Um, you want to go to the next question that Marie asked, uh, recyclers and other automotive business owners concern around certification I find is that if there are not systems in place to ensure compliance for all, they are disadvantaged. So it's interesting to hear Chad say that, that, that it benefited his business. Information on how he achieved this through accreditation would be beneficial for recyclers and perhaps provide an incentive. Well, Marie, I actually never did fully reach NSF certification because NSF pulled out of the certifi uh, certifying the automotive sector um, about two weeks after I sent my information into NSF to become certified. And so we never did reach certification, but we went through the entire process. Uh, and it, it pointed out issues that our customers were seeing, but I was blind to. Uh, when you started talking about quality control, was, that was the big deal was quality control. Uh, we, we had all the safety stuff in place. We, we had all the uh, pollution stuff in place. That was real easy. But you start talking about keeping the customers happy and, and handling that, that took us to the next level of imaging every single part that went out you know, during the QC process. Uh, wrapping better. That's when we went into the panel armors a little bit deeper and started putting panel armors on every single uh, door that was leaving our place. Uh, the engines got more in intensive checks, uh, more compression checks, just everything about it. We did above and beyond, just one step beyond what we were doing before. And so it just it decreased our return ratios is what it did. And, uh, and we drove return ratios from 22% down to about 17%. But I was, you know, handling, you know, 45% broker parts there too. So that's the reason the numbers were the level they were. So, uh, but that's, that's how it did. I'd be glad to discuss that offline. If you've got some specific questions, just reach out, reach out to me. I'd be glad to answer them. Chad, can I just pick up on that? You mentioned there you started putting panel armors on and so on and so on. Uh, to a degree, you're talking about increasing costs. I mean, if, if you're going to start oh, buying panel llamas no, and doctors no, no, no. and so on, you're was, increasing costs. No, I was spending uh, five or six dollars per panel armor to buy them from from Charlie and, and Gene. Uh, and, and I was saving, we tracked it, I was saving about a, a one hour repair or time request per panel that was sold. And so you start saying that you're reimbursing at a rate of 35 to $50 per hour for damage. And then we have a decline in the request for uh, damage requests on panels after delivery, post delivery requests dropped by one hour per panel. And so you're saving 35 to $50 per panel by spending $5. And so it, 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 it more than paid for itself. Uh, at, at the, I'm sure that the business is still doing the same thing today, but we were going through 250 uh, single-use panel armors per week, 
And so we had a full pallet uh, arriving every week for us to go through panel armors. Uh, so it's, it definitely paid for itself. Absolutely. Okay. We want to move on a little bit from certification. Uh, well, a lot from certification. We've got a lot of, a lot of topics to cover and we're sort of halfway here. Um, but Marie, so Marie is uh, from the MTAWA, uh, just for some context there, represents the automotive recyclers in that uh, jurisdiction. Um, so in answer to Rob Mildenhall, as an association, MTAWA is happy to develop the criteria in consultation with recyclers and, the, and to police it, but usually do not have the authority to ensure compliance. We would be happy to handle compliance. So, Marie, I'll, let's take that as, as a comment and um, be happy to discuss and certainly hook the likes of Rob into those discussions. I think critical. So let's move on a little bit here, if we can, from uh, this topic. And uh, Okay, so one of the consistent sort of discussions we've been having over the phone is eBay getting involved in the B2B market in the UK. Um, is it good for the industry? You know, eBay, another middleman, you know, eBay, charging a fee, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I suppose I get it. Um, and it's similar, if you like, um, and I don't mean to compare the organisations, but the, the model is somewhat similar, whereby uh, Capricorn, for example, you know, facilitates the a relationship between a buyer and a seller. eBay does the same thing. Um, you could argue that uh, a number of other platforms do similar things. Uh, Parts Trader does a similar thing. Parts Check does a similar thing, etc., etc., etc. They're all facilitating the buyer and seller uh, relationship so that they can get closer and, and do business. My view, my view, and obviously I've been working closely with eBay in that market. My view is that the amount of time, effort, and money that an organization like eBay can put into a program to lift the, how would I, the, the perception, but also to put the automotive recycling industry in the news, so to speak. Um, we, as an industry, independently cannot do that. I think for the, the, a matter of the X percent, whether it's five, six, seven, whatever it is, percent, of the sale my view is that it's cheap marketing it's cheap advertising because you'll only pay for that advertising if you sell your part it's not something you pay for and hope you sell your part it's not a yellow yellow pages ad or it's not a an adwords sort of campaign where you pay your hundreds of thousands of dollars to, to advertise and then hope the phone rings you pay if you use you pay if you sell it's a user pay model so in my view uh, yeah, I get the question. I understand the potential risk there, and I certainly understand that we want to sell our parts and not having to, not have to give a clip here and there. But we don't advertise anymore in the, the likes of those paper yellow pages, whatever you call them in in the US uh, uh, chat. Yeah, I think. Yeah. Um, we don't advertise there anymore, really. Let's face it; it's all online marketing. Um, often that's through a website. Um, often our websites aren't that good, by the way. Right. Uh, hand up. I mean, I'm, I'm guilty of that uh, because we don't have the know-how and we, we don't spend the money on those types of things. But an eBay is actually something that can take us to the market. And from a UK perspective, they've been instrumental in, in getting the word out about recycled parts. And over the next three to 12 months, I would suggest that you're going to be seeing a heap 
of uh, public relations work happening there. Uh, we're going to see a heap of marketing happening there and not just to mechanics and collision repairs. We're going to be see, seeing a fair bit of this in mainline, mainstream media. You know, the Daily Mirror and all that type of stuff, eBay, recycled parts, certified parts. Uh, you know, I think it's going to be an amazing sort of uh, story that we can tell in, in a year. Yeah, it definitely will bring um, awareness to our industry on a level that it does not have today. You know, when the likes of eBay start advertising, start getting it in the middle of it, it's going to bring it's going to bring our industry on the forefront of the knowledge of the the consumer. And so, uh, yes, it's going to be B two B platform uh, in the UK but it's going to also include advertisements that will follow over to the actual consumer. And so I look at this to bring um, the, the ROE part, the recycled original equipment part, uh, higher on the, the awareness of, of every consumer out there in the UK. And so it's exciting to see what happens. And uh, I, I look forward to, to seeing it uh, unfold in the coming months. Absolutely. I think the other thing, Chad, is we often talk about um, – creating some kind of differentiation between the good suppliers and the bad suppliers. Uh, and I think this piece here uh, can potentially help us achieve that, right? Because eBay's view of this B2B platform is that only the best will form part of this eBay platform. Those that are certified, that meet those standards, will be part of this platform. As a result, we've created that differentiation. We don't need legislation to do that. We don't need you know, someone to say, you must do this because often, let's face it, legislators don't make the best decisions for us. We need to be careful what we ask for because ultimately we may be, we may just get that. So let's think about how we can through a logical commercial sort of commercially compelling uh, opportunity, self-regulate and let the cream rise to the top. Okay, and I think that's the opportunity here. And, and I think eBay's playing a significant role, especially in the UK. Uh, uh, you, you know, you talk to Chaz Ambrose there at VRA. Um, he's in constant communication with uh, Laura and Tony there at UK eBay. Uh, you know, we'd love to have that type of uh, a relationship in other jurisdictions. So I think this is a starting point. Let's embrace it, I think. And uh, hopefully it leads to something bigger and better. And yeah, eBay's going to make a cut out of it. They're there for... They're there to make some money, uh, but ultimately it's only going to work if we're making money out of it as well as an industry. Yep. Okay, we move on. What have we got? Oh, Chad, tell us a little bit about the differences between Australia. I've had, I've had a million questions. What's the differences between Australia and the US? And, uh, and, and I could go on for hours probably about this, but I've got about a minute for this slide. So, uh, man, the dates, y'all. The, the, the dates that what you do, because you put the, the actual day of the week ahead of the month and it's opposite in the US. And so in this example here, May the 12th is written five, five slash 12 in the US and here in Australia, it's written 12 slash five. And so I look at 12 slash five and see December the 5th, but in true, it's May the 12th. And so it's, it's very confusing uh, right there. All the mobile phones here start with a zero four. And so you have an incoming call come from a zero four, you know it's somebody's cell number, or if you're gonna call a number you, and you see it's a zero four, you can text it. You know it's, you know for sure it's a cell number. That's, you know, it's not, a, not that way in the US at all. Uh, driver's side, I had an employee back in the US that always pulled the right side for the driver's side. And 
he would be right here. I mean, we could transplant him here and he would work fine. So it's just kind of funny. But uh, the driver side and passenger side uh, is definitely different with the steering wheel on the opposite side of the car. Electrical switches. This is an electrical. Yeah, you can see it right there. Up is off, down is on. And it it's not uh, ADA compliant either because uh, they're not concerned about uh, Americans with disabilities, I don't guess. But because uh, you can't flip it if, uh, without really touching it hard. And so it's the, the switches are definitely different. So that's a little bit of the differences right there. Move on to the next slide. See, did we have some more well, questions? I have to say, Chad, you know, you talk about our differences, but I'm in the office with this guy every day. And I'll tell you what, some of the stuff that he comes out with is incredible and different, <laughs> really different, right? <laughs> Okay, we've got a couple of questions actually, Chad. So let's let's okay. jump to those real quick. Don Porter again from URG. Are B2B sales through eBay in the UK subject to additional commission payments to the recycler's salesperson? If commission is paid, is it at a different rate? Just curious as to how pricing of the part is determined to take into consideration in this process. Okay, I think I get the question there. Um, so I don't know the exact answer as to what the uh, rates that eBay charges are in the UK. Oh, sorry, but what I do understand is they're not charging anything extra to be part of this platform. So if you were paying, I don't know, let's say 6% of the sale prior to in, in the current model, um, you would pay 6% of the sale to eBay uh, in the B2B platform. Okay, so they're not charging any extra for that. As far as how it works with your salespeople at an individual yard, I suppose that would be a discussion between uh, the yard owner and the uh, salesperson at that yard as to whether uh, taking that sale and processing that sale, taking that order and processing that order would, um, would meet sort of a, a deal there as far as the, the salesperson getting commission as well. Chad, I suppose you might be a good person to answer that, having been a yard owner there just three or four months ago. Um, yeah, how did you do this in the context of, let's say, a parts trader, where parts trader takes the commission? Um, how did you work that with your salespeople when they took the sale? I treated a, a parts trader sale just the same as a telephone sale, paid the same commission to my salespeople. Uh, parts trader took a very small percentage. I mean, it was it was low. It was it was very, very reasonable. It seemed like our bill was about $600 per month is what that bill was. And that was many, many transactions going through there. And so it, it was very cheap. And now a 6% commission, I would be, I would be trying to figure a way for that transaction to find its way directly to the work order screen instead of going through the sales screen. Uh, because, you know, my commission that was going out to my salespeople was 6% also. And so with 6% going to eBay, it's basically adding eBay as a commissioned salesperson for you. And so in order to make it, uh, to justify that expense, I would need to route those transactions through, uh, away from the sales team and, and directly into the uh, work order team. Um, so, but that being said, everybody's gonna be different. Everybody's gonna be different in the way they handle it. That'd be a, a personal decision. Uh, and so that's not advice. That's what just saying what I would have done uh, if I were still you know, an owner of an operation today, uh, just because I'm looking for the bottom line. Again, the 
the business has to stay afloat. The business has to be profitable. And when you're running at a, you know, 10 to 15% net profit, 6% is a, a big chunk. I mean, you go from, if you paid 6% commission to your salespeople and 6% to uh, the eBay, now you're at 12% commission and the whole business may only be at 10 or 12% net profit. And so it's costing you money then at that point. So you, you've got to, uh, uh, you got to be aware you got to keep the business afloat. So, yeah. Okay. I think that's interesting. What the, the, the point there that you make that's really interesting for me, Chad, is that you potentially are treating eBay as a commission salesperson. Okay. So we talk about eBay or other platforms for that matter, are charging a fee, Capricorn for that matter, charging a fee. I've always said Capricorn hand is you know, the best advertising you could ask for. Um, why? Because you, you, yeah, you pay a commission, but they're bringing the customer to your door. Um, and I think that's really, really important. If we look at it like that, we don't look at it as someone sort of taking money, but we pay for someone to actually sit there selling our parts. So, you know, it makes sense that uh, you look at it like that. So yes, I, I do agree though, that if you're double dipping on that commission, it makes it difficult. All the more reason to find a streamlined process and integration with our systems, right? So I think that's really important. Um, yeah, I don't agree. It's always a critical argument that recyclers have. Um, interesting your point there. This is always the argument, even with us working with Amazon. Be interested if you could expand on that a little bit, um, Don. Maybe you you want to call, to, maybe you get, call about that, yeah. Yeah, happy to get you on the screen if you want to have a expand on that a little bit. Let us know. I don't want to put you on the spot, but certainly um, happy to get you on the screen and, and talk about that if that's something you'd like to do. Let us know during this uh, during this call if you want to do that, uh, Don, and we'll be happy to sort of make you live. I think I can do that fairly easily. All right, back to a question to me. The water goes down the drain the opposite direction. Uh, I, actually, I have not seen it. The toilets here are so radically different. The, the water flows through so fast, I, it doesn't have a chance to circle here. So I, I haven't seen that yet. So. <laughs> <laughs> We've got a better drainage system than you do over there, put it that way. Okay. So we've got one here from Hayden Davies, Auto Recycling Word. It's a tad long. Um, Don, I'm going to get you one in a second. So let us let us deal with this one, and then we'll get you one. Talk a little bit about Amazon. Um, in your podcast, I think in uh, I think in every one so far, there has been a reference to the image of the industry, how there is a need to eradicate the general public, uh, to the general public, and bias traditional and unfair perception of scrapyards. As an example, the feral Alsatian barking outside the gates springs to mind and to let them understand the professionalism investment that is involved in running an auto recycling company and the benefits such our industry can bring. Why does it seem that so little has been done by authorities to address the problem and how can we help to resolve this to portray a very different image to what the majority <clears throat> presently convey and nor be held back by the illegal operators. Hayden Davis from Auto Recycling World in the UK. Chad, We've had, a, we've had a look at a number of yards here in Australia. We've been and visited yards all over, well, in most, well, at least in Sydney and Melbourne, um, until we were locked down. But tell us a little bit about that. I know we've spoken about the perception. I know we've spoken about the image. What's your view on authorities regulating? How do we do it if it's not regulation? I am an American. I am an American and I have a different perspective than, than a, a, a somebody from the UK or from Australia. Seems like the Australians and the, and the UK guys want more oversight, more legislation. Uh, 
the American comes out of me. I don't want more oversight, more legislation. What this boils down to me is pride. If, if I'm going to take pride in my operation to make it appear professional, I'm going to invest the money to make it appear professional. I'm going to keep the facade of the front of the building looking good and my parking lot's going to look good. I'm going to have the money invested in that. My website will look better. Uh, my processes will be better because I take pride in what I'm doing. And so you ask the question, how can we bring professionalism through mandates or through uh, you know, the yard owners themselves? Uh, just trying to make the operation better. It's, it's a different perspective from different countries. Uh, in my perspective, it, it takes pride in the, in the owner of the operation to step up and, uh, and, and to invest the money in the appearance uh, processes, what's going on there, versus simply investing in more cars and take some of the profits out of the cars in order to keep your place looking good. And so it's a, the owner, it's what it boils down to, in my idea. Chris, you have a different opinion on that? Uh, no, I think pride pride's critical. I mean, at the end of the day, it's if you don't if you're not proud of what you're doing, you actually don't present yourself that way. I think it, it reflects on the product that you're going to be shipping out. You know, at the end of the day, it comes down to that. you. I walk into a good operation, a nice operation. I know straight away whether I want to deal with them or not. I know whether they're going to be a good supplier or a bad supplier. Um, the challenge, I, I suppose, we have there is that pride is difficult to control. You know, and you've got some people that are there to just make the quick buck and get out um, to do it however, legally, illegally, well, not well, compliant or non-compliant, and so on and so on. So there's a, there's a heap of things that come into play there. Um, how do we do it? What do we do? I suppose I keep on coming back. I don't think more regulation is necessarily the answer. Probably been hanging around Chad too long, but I, I agree with Chad there. Um, I don't know that we want to regulate everything because, as I said, um, I don't know that the regulators will necessarily make the right decisions, um, and and that could us could put us you know out in the lurch. So, my view is I come back to the certification thing. You know, we need to make that type of environment possible so that um, yards do need to stretch to get there. It's not just something that they can do in five minutes because you know anyone can do it. It's not something that's done where they pay a $200 check every year and, and get a, a sticker saying that I'm certified because that means nothing. It needs to be something that means something and that actually will deliver a better result to the customer. And I think that will enhance the perception because walking into some of these yards, guys, you know, it took us three days to get the stench of, of, of oil and fuel off the bottom of our shoes. With I was sitting in the office and I said, what is that smell? I realized it was my shoes. They smelled like gasoline after we had toured a facility uh, the previous day. And so it, it, it... All right. So I'm going to get Don Porter on here if I can. So Don, bear with me if you're there. Let's see if we can get you on. I think I've allowed you to talk there, Don. Um, are you there? You're on mute. I think I am now. You are. We can't see you, Don. I'm not sure how to do that bit, but we, we can hear you. So Don Porter, CEO of um, URG in the US in Texas. Uh, tell us a little bit about where you guys are at with URG quickly, Don, without stealing the thunder too much, because we want to get you on for a show soon. Um, but tell us a little bit about Amazon. You mentioned Amazon there. I'd be interested to understand. Well, right now, URG has been working with Amazon for over a year, uh, getting... Uh, our people in line to be able to sell certain part types through Amazon. So at this point in time, I think we're the only organization right now that has been able to do that 
through Amazon. And it's by setting up specific criteria for the recycler that has to meet that criteria to be able to, to participate and to work through the process. But it's, you know, it's, it's funny that I think that if, if I, I'm not a recycler uh, and I grew up in the insurance industry, but I'm just thinking that the more places I put my parts out on to be seen by others, the more opportunities I have for part sales. And you guys can, can tell me if that's a bad statement or not. I agree with that statement, uh, Don. Uh, and, and now the Aussies here don't don't agree with that statement. Um, but but I agree. And when I was running my operation in the U.S., it was everything I could do to, to share my data on every platform I could with my prices everywhere I possibly could. I wanted to be integrated with the estimate writing platforms. I wanted my my prices on Carpart.com. I wanted my prices on Eden. I wanted my prices through everything that URG had. Uh, I was sharing my data through CCC everywhere I possibly could. I was pushing data out there. Now I have colleagues that will argue the opposite way and say that, that uh, by sharing your data, you're giving uh, competition, your everything that you're asking for your prices, you're, you're and giving them an opportunity to reprice their parts to beat yours. But the truth is decisions are made in seconds these days with what's on the screen. And if your price and data is not out there, you're not going to have the opportunity. So if you can get your inventory on Amazon and sell through Amazon, uh, I would say go for it. Yeah, but, and to your point right there, quality and service is going to make a difference if people buy it. And, and that reputation and the integrity of your business is going to be there to represent that as, as you go through the process. But it's, it's funny that, you know, they're worried about the commission or the, the charges that Amazon or eBay or parts trader or, or anybody else is charging, but it's hard to get them to understand uh, to a certain extent, not everyone, but some that, you know, more part sales, more part types that you sell lead to, you know, better return on your investment in your organization and, and you know, more profit. So even though if you sell a part for a little bit of a discount to get it on or you pay an additional commission, it's still more part sales that lead to better profitability in your organization. I'm sorry. Yeah, if you weren't already selling that part type, I agree completely on that. And so your average recycler selling 10 to 13 parts uh, per vehicle and they're breaking even, making money, making everything profitable at, you know, 10 to 13 parts. If you could raise that bar to, to 18 to 25 parts by selling the, some lower demand items on a, a different platform with a higher commission, everything generated from that's going to be additional profit as long as you didn't have additional uh, expenses associated with getting it on those platforms. Right. And we're selling engines and trans and everything else through Amazon right now. So it's been really good for those people that have wanted to participate, but it does take uh, some work within the organization to get people to the right standards to meet the criteria because you get one or two bad reviews on Amazon and you're gone. Yeah. So I think, I think that's, that's a really, I mean, a lot of people have been talking about Amazon, <clears throat> excuse me, Don. So it'd be good uh, when we have our session, maybe that this could be one of the uh, discussion points that we, we have. Eh? I think that'd be really good. Um, so thanks for sharing, Don. I really appreciate that. Excellent. Anything else you, you want to add, Don, before? We'll no, I'm good. Thank you. Yeah, and look forward to having you on soon. 
Okay. Great. I think that was uh, really good insight from uh, from Don. Um, got a question here from Peter at Affordable Parts World. Hi, guys. I fully agree with Don. In fact, the only thing to carry us through our COVID lockdown and come out of the other side way better off was our online presence. I learned a lot uh, of that from URG conferences way back. So Peter's from uh, Parts World in New Zealand, as everyone may know. Um, New Zealand was in total lockdown, you know, um, stage four lockdown for a month came out of that probably uh, three weeks ago. Uh, so really they weren't able to go and trade, take calls and do any of that. Um, but they did receive sales through their online platforms, the majority of which uh, come through a platform called Trade Me over in, in New Zealand, which is similar to eBay, but the New Zealand version of it. Um, not connected to eBay at all, I should add. So, Excellent. Thanks for that comment. And again, thank you, Don, for um, for your uh, contribution there. Really good. Okay. Uh, let's have a quick look at what we've got next. Some more differences. Chad, let's race through some of these. Uh, All right. Flip-flops versus thongs. We've already covered that uh, on a previous podcast. The, the Australians use the term ketchup and the Americans would use the term grab a coffee. And so, because Chris will invite me to catch up sometimes and that will be Let's grab a coffee together. Spelling of a few words, learned versus learnt, has a T on the end of it, the way uh, some of the Canadians do and the UK guys do. Leased, in the past tense, we leased a piece of property versus let. Uh, you see that in the UK also. Uh, the letter Z, uh, if you're doing your alphabet, is pronounced Z here. I thought it was a, a Chris uh, only uh, idiom that he did, you know, was saying Z all the time. But it turns out that that's the way all the Aussies do it. Uh, food, there is no grape jelly here. I can't find grape jelly anywhere. I can't find grits. Uh, a biscuit here is a cookie. A scone is a biscuit. It's, it's, uh, it's difficult to understand what's going on with that. Chips versus fries. They actually call potato chips chips. They also call French fries chips, and it's all confusing. You know, it's so. Uh, conversion rates. I'm using an American Express card uh, that's billed back in the U.S. on an American dollar system uh, for everything I buy here. And the conversion rates have varied from 56 cents uh, US dollars equaling a dollar of Australian to 64 cents. And so those conversion rates make my daily lunch expense vary because I'm, I'm trading at a different rate basically. And then um, I started making a few desserts, uh, bringing them to the office and sharing with, with Chris and, and uh, they don't have pound cake or pecan pie or peach cobbler here. so. Interesting. <laughs> Thanks, Chad. You guys do stuff really strange over there, tell you. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Chad. Look, let's face it. It's just too hard to broker parts. No, sir. It's been something we've heard over and over again. I sh we shouldn't generalize. Some really good brokering uh, yards here, um, and they do a great job at brokering. But we hear this so much, don't we? We do. We do. Um, the truth is, we don't have a logistic solution here in the Australian market. Is, is what it is. We've, we've got some hodgepodge, some some carriers that are trying to make some stuff work, but they, they require you know, 48 hours for the part to be delivered to the end user. Uh, there truly is not a solution that delivers an, a product to the uh, consumer the very next morning. And so we saw the logistical problem, we make it easier to broker parts, and then we create relationships amongst the 
uh, yard owners uh, and they trust one another. Brokering becomes very easy. And, and I think it's on another slide, but uh, I was at a facility the other day and he was proud of the fact he was at 0.1% brokered parts. And, and I, I was like, wow, man, this is, we need to, you need to be a higher, you need to be saying yes more frequently. You know, I, I had him pull up his in-stock uh, lookup ratio and he was at 50.5% in-stock lookup. So he was saying, he was saying no 49% of the time because he, he was not brokering parts. And so we've got to get the mindset, use the brokered parts to increase profit. And, uh, and then we've got to have a logistical solution to solve it also. So but brokering parts is not hard. You have to change your commission structure a little bit for your salespeople to motivate them to do it and provide the, the resources to make it happen on, on the logistics. I agree. I agree. And again, if there are any comments there, please let us know. Um, Karen Smith, I know Karen, you were on the podcast and you did have a question earlier, but I can't find it. So please, Karen, if you could uh, pop it back in, uh, we'd love to answer it. Um, certainly some more differences here. Um, Hollander, exporters, cores, brokering, Capricorn. Do you want to quickly chat to some of those uh, yep, yep, yep. for international and local Hollander guests? Hollander in the U.S. sells a Powerlink system. However, Hollander everywhere else in the world sells the Pinnacle system. And the Pinnacle system that's used here in Australia is a derivative of the Pinnacle system that is currently used in the U.S. market. So it's kind of weird to understand that Hollander uh, it has both Pinnacle and Powerlink. It's kind of to wrap your head around that idea. Um, I've toured multiple exporters here in the Australian market. They, they own a Pinnacle system, but they don't use it. And so I don't understand why and how that works. But I was in one the other day that had some hundreds and hundreds of late model European vehicles had been dismantled and sitting on his property, but none of them were in the computer. We looked at his computer and he had 186 cars in his computer system. And, and it was just crazy why he didn't use it. Core charges, they do not charge core charges here. Yes, there are a few outliers, but as a whole, there are no core charges charged on used auto parts. And so they're, they're also throwing away starters, alternators, compressors, rack and pinions. Some yards are throwing away engines and transmissions. I was at a facility the other day. Um, an employee came in and said, what to do with that pile of uh, core engines sitting out there? And he said, throw them all in the dumpster and haul them off for scrap weight. And so, and, and, you know, looking at them, they had core value, but there's nobody here to buy the cores. And so that's an observation. Brokering, I mentioned this earlier, many large, large, large yards are between zero and 10% of their total sales for brokering. And they're not even attempting to truly, truly broker at the level that could be brokered. Capricorn is something different here. It's sort of like interstate billing back in the U.S., but everybody uses it. And so uh, you bill a single Capricorn account, but you may deliver it to uh, ABC Body Shop or XYZ Body Shop, but you're billing Capricorn and just putting a Capricorn number in the uh, transaction. Uh, so you're getting paid from a single vendor of Capricorn at a 6% discount versus uh, billing the individual accounts. Back in the US, I had 500, 600, 700 statements would go out per uh, month to build those many different accounts. And here you may only have, you know, 10, 15, 20 statements got because everything's going to uh, Capricorn for everything. You're guaranteed your money and you're going to get paid at a certain date of the month, um, but it's costing you a percentage of your, your sales. And that's different here. Great. Thanks, Chad. Good to sort of talk to those things because sometimes it's about getting the context as well, what things are different and we can pick things up from different people, such as the Corsby, you know, 
that's an interesting one. The brokering bit is really interesting. Capricorn, I, I think, is is an amazing sort of model. So um, good to work through some yeah. of those. So guys, you, don't we're chase, you don't have to chase your money. I know in the U.S. I had a full-time lady that did nothing but but chase the money. She was full-time collections. And once the account got to 60 days past due, she was on the phone with them every day trying to collect the money. And we were running, you know, 10% over 60 days. And you start saying, you know, I've got 70, 80, 90 thousand dollars. It's over two months uh, outstanding, and we're trying to collect it. It was astronomical dollar figures. Yeah. And the risk associated to it as well. So, um, okay, so we've got another uh, conscious of time here, guys. Um, understand that it's gone an hour now, but uh, if, you, if you could stay on, please do. We've, we're, we're happy to continue doing this uh, for another 10 or so minutes. Um, if a reclaimed part is used and the donor vehicle is involved in a recall and the part used is affected, does the liability for the part remain with the vehicle manufacturer or maker of the part? What about the recycler's liability? Adam Murray, Aviva Insurance in the UK. So I've been working closely with Adam um, over the past, oops, sorry about that, over the past couple of years. Um, and Certainly, Aviva Insurance is embracing reclaimed, as they call it, reclaimed parts in the UK. Um, one of the real supporters of reclaimed parts is, is Adam himself, and he, he really wants to make uh, this work. So it's been great working with Adam. One of the, I suppose, one of the answers to the questions, the question there, Adam. Look, I think critical. We make clear that we're not legal sort of advisors and sort of we'll answer this question as best as we can but certainly not giving advice um, that's the first disclaimer um, but that said uh, it seems to me from discussions and what i understand around recall parts and who owns the liability if you like to that vehicle manufacturers ultimately are the the people that get paid to uh, sell those cars when they sell those cars they get paid for those vehicles um, they have a responsibility to make sure that vehicle is fit for purpose and all the components upon which uh, or on that vehicle are fit for purpose and if they reclaimed it's a vehicle manufacturer that recalls the part not the part producer they could be two different things so for example you could be you know GM may be producing a vehicle on the assembly line as we speak in Detroit uh, but all the components for those for the vehicle may be coming from third-party suppliers. The glass will be coming from Pilkington, for example, or the seats may be coming from someone else, um, and so on and so on. So all those components may be made by third parties. I am sure that the vehicle manufacturer's contracts with those component makers would mean that there would be a chain of responsibility that they would push down the chain, right, back to the producers of those parts. Um, so I hopefully that answers Adam's Adam's question there. But ultimately, if we look at the Takata recall, for example, at the minute, uh, Takata doesn't exist anymore. Uh, the onus has fallen on the vehicle manufacturers. And, and just on that note, we're looking to get a number of the vehicle manufacturers on a podcast over the next few weeks as well um, to see if we can have a bit of a chat about how they want to work with our industry moving forward, not only with recalls, but beyond recalls. So, but... Vehicle manufacturers seem to uh, have to take responsibility. I'm sure they have mechanisms through which they then help hold their supply chain responsible. I think the most critical question here is what about recyclers' liability and, and what, what do we need to be aware of as an automotive, automotive recycler having sold a part that is now recalled 
or having sold a part that was recalled at the time of sale. I think it's two different things. If, you, if a part is recalled at the time of sale, so let's say you sell a control arm today from a, uh, a Mitsubishi Triton, a 2017, I think Mitsubishi Triton, one of the control arms on those vehicles has been recalled because they break. Um, now, most, if not all, recyclers that are on this call probably don't know that that control arm has been recalled. Um, it is your obligation to know that the control arm is recalled, and if you sell that control arm, you need to make sure that you, you know, you tell whoever's buying it. Well, in fact, don't sell it. You need to remove that part from sale. Um, if a part is not recalled at the time of sale, but is recalled at a later date, the automotive recycler should have a process within their business processes, within their business, that enables them to one identify that it is now recalled, and two. They have a documented process that enables them and they can show that they've gone through the process of telling the buyer of that part. Whether that person bought the part a year ago or five years ago is irrelevant. They now know that there's a recall on that part. They need to be able to tell the, the, the buyer of the part, whether that be a mechanical shop, a collision shop, or just someone that might have bought it off eBay, that that part has now been recalled and they need to make contact with their um with the vehicle manufacturer or the dealership so that they can have it rectified. Chad, I'm not sure if you've got anything else to add to that, but I think that covers most of that. I think you've covered it. We're not lawyers and can't give legal advice on that, but I think you have covered it. Okay. So Adam, hopefully that answers your question when you watch this recording in the morning. Um, okay. What else have we got? I think we're towards the end. Trading groups and your future growth. Chad, I'm going to hand over to you on this one. Um, because it, it was a key part of the discussion last week with uh, uh, the likes of uh, Parts Plus and um, uh, PRP. And I think the key part have, of the industry that we don't take advantage of locally. So yeah, please take absolutely. us. We're going to have Bo Roten on in a couple of weeks to talk about a different trading group in the U.S. Um, it's how I grew my business radically, was trading amongst other recyclers. And uh, in December of last year, when I sold... Um, my top 15 customers were other salvage yards and my top 15 customers were other salvage yards. And so that just tells you the volume of what, what was going on. And trading groups are, are huge. I mean, it's a radical change in my operation when we went to, to trading with one another and, and being able to say yes to the customers more frequently, increasing our brokering numbers to get them up to 20, 30, 40% of our total sales. Um, it, it made a, a radical difference. And so I'm a strong supporter of trading groups and uh, and the logistics that support a trading group also. Trading group has to have a logistical solution implemented with it for it to truly work. Yeah, okay. Well, I think I think it's critical. Well, okay, let me be devil's advocate here for a second, Chad. Uh, but I don't want to be selling my parts to another uh, recycler. I want to be selling them directly to the customer. Why? I mean, because you want to say yes more frequently. I mean, you, you've already told me uh, I, I'm going to play, I'm going to play a role that you are a recycler and you're arguing with me. That's you've already right. told me, do you only say yes 50% of the time? If you only say yes, 50% of the time, that means you're saying no 50% of the time you can increase your sales. Theoretically doubling your sales 
by simply brokering. If you had a large enough network where you could reach part availability rate of 100%, which is going to be difficult to do. We, we heard 98% by, by PRP last week, uh, heard 90% for the RCD group. It all depends on how large the trading group is as to what your part availability rate is going to be. But you're talking north of 90% with every, every group we've talked to. And, and so with north of 90%, part availability rate, you then can say yes to 90% of all the calls and you can turn a 40%. Well, I don't want to put numbers on it, but say you put a pretty good markup on every broker part uh, and, and you're brokering the parts and able to meet the demand because you can buy the part the next day and you've got the part being there and you are the supplier for your particular customer. They're going to stop calling the competition. They're going to be calling you every time because you say yes, every time they call theoretically. Uh, and, and so you, you have a higher uh, level of standing with your customers because you're delivering the product on a, a daily basis and meeting their demands. And so you've got to broker parts. Uh, if, if you're not brokering parts, a competitor will be brokering parts and you will end up going out of business. Yeah, look, I, I totally agree with it. Uh, one of the challenges we have, as, as you've seen going around to different yards is this, some great inventory out there sitting in yards that simply is not on a system. And often, even though they've got the pinnacle system sitting there, whatever system they've got there, they're not using it properly. Um, and by not using it properly, they've got all these secrets, you know, the, to use um, uh, Peter Butler's uh, uh, little, little saying, they've got all these secrets that they can't sell and people can't see simply because they're not prepared to put the time and effort to actually inventory the vehicles and inventory the parts, which is why they bought the system. Um, which is which is really crazy. The other reason I've seen, oh, you, you wouldn't believe it. So we get some new users coming onto the Pinnacle and their question is, do I have to show my parts to other users? And I say to them, well, do you want another 200 sets of salespeople is the question. Um, and, and they sort of, you know, they sort of go quiet for a little bit because they're trying to work out what I'm saying there. But the reality is, if you go on Pinnacle and you put your parts in the inventory and you price your parts, Guys, it's the most important thing to do. It's not about telling other recyclers that your part is at X price and therefore they can undercut you. It's not about, they'll be doing a disservice to their own business if they do that. It's not about showing that you've got 20 of that particular part in stock and that's a bad thing. That's a great thing because guess what? If you've got 20 of that in stock, you might get a call from someone that hasn't got any of those but has very big demand for that type of product who might turn around and make you a, do a deal with you and say, I'll pay you X for all of that product. Well, it's product that you got sitting on the shelf and it's not going to turn into cash anytime soon. Otherwise you wouldn't have 20 sitting there. So there's a whole heap of positives, but again, locally, Australia, New Zealand, and probably New Zealand more than Australia, to be honest, um, have this challenge that, you know, I don't want to tell my competitor, uh, that is the auto recycler, um, what my price is or that I've got that in stock or whatever. Here's there's where our mindset has to shift. Our competitor is not the other recycler. We are competing against aftermarket. We're competing against OEM. You know, you look at the, the repairs that are going on in the body shops and they're 80 or 90%, a lot of times OEM parts used in those repairs. And, and so that's where our biggest growth potential is, is reaching that market, delivering our product, supplying our product to the collision repair industry. And because there is great demand for panel there and, and we are not reaching that, not even near to the level we could be. 
And so I want to go a step further there, Chad. And, and I, I know we say that our competitor is the aftermarket and now we am. I like to say that we coexist. And I, I, the reason I say that is I don't even think that they're our competitors. Our biggest competitor is ourselves. And the reason I say that is because we don't get that by supplying a better mix of parts on that repair, by supplying OE parts, by supplying aftermarket, and sometimes the aftermarket part may be the right part to use on that part. And we shouldn't argue about that as a recycling industry. Why? Because if we get the right mix, more cars will be repaired and we will sell more parts. Aftermarket suppliers will sell more parts. OE suppliers will sell more parts. The critical, the critical point here that I'm making, though, is that by getting the mix of parts right, by getting that repair cost right, by enabling an insurer to not total loss that vehicle, we're all winning out of it. So yeah. I'd like our industry to start thinking more about less competitive, uh, less com competition, so to speak, with, with other uh, sectors of the parts industry, but to start thinking more around how do we coexist with these organisations? How can we help one another actually sell more parts? The only way we can do that is we repair more cars. Simple as that. Yep, you're right. You're right. And you're, you're thinking a bigger picture than what I was thinking. But if the cars are totaling because the, the cost of the repair is too high and we can actually save a car by putting one or two or three aftermarket parts on the car that may be a little bit cheaper and we save the car and we get to still sell our door, then that's a door we, we wouldn't have sold otherwise. And so uh, I, I see a bigger picture you're, you're explaining. Now, I think if you're thinking like that, then we're thinking long-term strategy. You know, we're thinking about what's good for the industry. And let's think of, imagine if the OEs were thinking this way. And I can tell you now from the work I do with some of the, uh, the vehicle manufacturers, they are starting to think that way. They are starting to see the light that putting all new parts on a 12-year-old car isn't a good thing because they're not going to sell one of those parts. It's going to total loss, especially today with some of the cost of the components. So what if we could repair every single one of those 12-year-old cars? And what if you only sold 50% of the parts used in that repair? You've just sold 50% more parts you're ever going to sell. Yep. And we've just sold more and the aftermarket sold more. So again, I think it's a matter of embracing the coexistence. It's about thinking coexistence and saying, how can we work with one another? Um, like I said, I think the biggest competitor we have is the way we think, is our thinking process. I think we need to work through that. So, okay, we, we're really running over time. I think this has been a great discussion. Tracy from Anzac Avenue Records has, has posted a question. Wouldn't the, the recall come from manufacturers because it's been generated? Um, so, uh, Tracy, I think I'm getting the question here, referring to parts sold that go on recall later. Okay, so you've sold a part, it's not recalled at the point of sale, but it is recalled, let's say in two years' time after you sold it. Um, so yes, the vehicle manufacturer does make the recall. So they're the ones that activate the recall. It's uh, the, the terminology they use. So they will say VIN number ABC has a recall on it. And the recall is, let's say, the right-hand front lower controller. Okay. So at that point, they've activated that recall. But the reality is, is here, tracing for everyone else, that once that vehicle has exited the registered market and it's gone into what I call the um, tier two supply chain, which is automotive recyclers, so it's not registered anymore as a vehicle on the road, 
We then take that vehicle and we take parts of that vehicle and we sell that controller. There is no traceability in the context of a vehicle manufacturer. They can activate the recall, but no one knows where the car is and no one knows where the component part actually is. Is it still in your yard or has it been sold to a uh, unknowing consumer? The riskiest part of that is obviously option two or the chance of you selling it to an unknowing consumer. And that's where um, using a recall service or being able to trace recalls to, to one, identify that there is now a recall on a vehicle that you have handled over the years. That's the first step. The second step is an internal investigation that you would need to make uh, or take. And that would be, um, have I sold any parts of this vehicle? The first question. If the answer is yes, and that part that you've sold is a recall, is the part that's been recalled, then that's where your recall process should kick in where you need to make contact with the buyer of the part from you. Um, if you've still got that part in stock, then it's your responsibility to remove that from stock so that you do not sell the part. From an Australian consumer law perspective, Tracy, um, Australian consumer law says that you must not sell recall components. It's illegal to do so. It's illegal to sell a part that is not fit for purpose. And because recall parts are safety recalls, um, you know, it's obvious there that we can't be selling those parts. So hopefully that answers your question, Tracy. Um, but if you need to discuss that any further, I'm happy for you to um, drop me or chat an email or a call, um, and we can we can talk you through that process a little bit more. So, guys, we're 15 minutes or, or so over, 18 minutes over. Chad, any more closing comments from you? Just to touch on what Tracy just asked, there was a recycler. Uh, in the U.S. that sold an airbag that uh, was on an active recall. He did not know it because he did not subscribe to the service to know uh, that the airbag was used to repair a vehicle that ultimately was resold, the secondary airbag deployed, injured an individual, and then the individual has in turn sued everybody that touched that airbag, including the manufacturer and the recycler. I don't know if that particular case has settled yet, but I know that it's been going on since 2017 and it was still active just, you know, a few months ago, but I don't know what's happened now. But the truth is that, that when a lawsuit does happen with their, when there is an injury, uh, the plaintiff's uh, attorneys file suit on everybody they possibly can. If they think you have insurance, they're going to sue you. And uh, I've been, the, I've been the, the point of several uh, litigations over the years because that I was a bigger operation and they're going to try to sue you because they think that they can get something out of you. And then you're sitting in a deposition one day and they say, how much general liability insurance do you have? And you look at your lawyer and it says, tell them the truth. And it's like, oh, I don't want to tell them the truth because they're going to sue me for a big seven digit number now because I have lots of liability insurance. But that's, that's what the lawyers do on the, the uh, plaintiff side or uh, somebody's trying to sue you. And so be aware of that, that risk and try your best to not sell any parts that have, are on active recall. And if you have the ability to trace that part back and realize it uh, came up on an active recall after you sold it, you need to do your part to actually notify the consumer of that recall. Excellent. Thanks for that background, Chad. So everyone, thank you. Thank you for a really good session. I think that session went really well. We may do that every couple of months, Chad, where we get an opportunity to recap where we've been. Um, we had some really, really good questions and interaction both offline and online. Sorry if we didn't get to some of the um, 
Facebook ones, but we, we will get to those uh, as soon as we can. Also, please like the YouTube channel. Um, we'd love you to do that. Appreciate you being on this call and for all your questions and continued support. Hopefully, you're getting value out of the sessions. I think you are. Otherwise, you wouldn't be turning up over and over again. We've had over a 1,000 views per episode that we've had on different channels, Facebook, YouTube, uh, and also these, uh, these things. So thanks for everyone that's watching. Really appreciate it. And have a good week. Stay safe. Bye from us. Bye-bye.